0: Hello and welcome to the Righteous Remnant Podcast. If you'd like to support our ministry or find out more about us, you can do so at therighteousremnant.org. All right, welcome to the Righteous Remnant Podcast. This week we're going to be taking a look at one of the biggest reasons why people misinterpret the Bible. And obviously people misinterpret the Bible for a lot of different reasons, but this is a pretty big one. It's one that I've experienced myself, and, um, and that is having a lack of value for Israel and specifically for Jewish culture, Jewish, um, beliefs in the first century and before, um, there's really a lot of ignorance in the modern church about what Jews actually thought, um, and believed. And yet, you know, we're trying to interpret their writings from 2000 plus years ago. And, um, You know, this is something that actually I think the Bible itself warns us about numerous times. Um, A a big place where it warns us is in Romans 11. I just want to take a second and read this passage because I think the warning that is given this passage um, has come true. Okay, it has come true. All right, so this is Paul, and he's warning Gentile Christians. Okay, that's Gentile means non-Jewish. Right, He's warning Gentile believers not to become arrogant towards Jewish believers. And he's using the metaphor of a of a tree, right? And just so I can set this up so you can understand the passage, in the metaphor, Christ is the root of the tree, okay? And Israel are the branches, okay? And this is what he says, he says, if some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do consider this, you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you will also be cut off. Okay, so that's Romans 11, 17 through 22. And this is a warning to these Gentile believers not to become arrogant towards Israel. And unfortunately, that is exactly what happened. Okay, so in church history, what we see is that in the early church, you know, the, the first disciples, they were all Jewish, right? You have the original apostles, and then you have, you know, on the day of Pentecost, Peter preaches to all the Jews gathered in Jerusalem, and 3,000 are saved. So the early church is all Jewish, but then starting around Acts chapter 10 and moving onwards, what starts to happen is God really starts to move amongst the Gentiles, and Gentiles start getting saved and filled with the Spirit. And um, pretty quickly, by the end of the first century, you know something like ninety percent of the church was actually Gentile, right? And it, and that's been increasing since, right? And so what happened starting, you know, in the second, third centuries, um, the, the church started to get very anti-Semitic. And you see, you can see it in some of the writings of, you know, uh, Christian leaders like um, John Chrysostom, like Justin Martyr, right? You can start to see in these early Christian leaders like the beginnings of anti-Semitism. And that really gets stronger later on to the point where, you um, you know, Jews were really persecuted unless they proved that they weren't Jewish. If they wanted to be Christian, right, then they had to prove that they weren't Jewish. And what really happened was that the church lost a lot of understanding of Jewish culture, Jewish tradition, Jewish thinking, all this kind of stuff, and started to invent its own interpretations for many of these passages. And, um, you know, this is this is something I think most Christians don't even realize today. I for sure did not realize it. um, but I have, you know, my own testimony with this. and um, you know, so for me, I started pastoring when I was fairly, you know, fairly young. I mean, I was twenty four, something like that, and I pastored for, you know, six years or so. Um, and then I felt like the Lord um spoke to me and it was I was listening to a, a pastor named Jack Hayford Jack Hayford um, used to be the, the the founding pastor of a church called Church on the way and um, he started a seminary and he was sharing he was giving testimony at this conference about his seminary and as he was sharing about it, um, I felt the Lord really move on me and it was one of the clearest words that I've ever had in my life and I felt like he told me um, move to Texas and start seminary at this seminary, which was King's University. And so um, and so, I did that. And my first semester in seminary, I signed up for an intro to Messianic Judaism class. Okay, At the time, I didn't really know what Messianic Judaism was. I'd heard of it. I didn't really know what it was. And um, you know, on the first day of that class, I remember the professor, he said, um, the apostles kept the law of Moses all their lives. And I remember when he said that, I just thought in my mind, no, they didn't, they didn't, right? No, they didn't, right? I can think of several passages off the top of my head that prove that they did not keep the law of Moses. And so I just thought he was wrong. Um, but as he started to explain the relevant scriptures, and we went through a number of them, you know, in the course of the class, you know, by the end of that class, I was convinced he was right, I was wrong. And it really challenged me because, you know, I had been teaching the Bible, I had been, um, you know, studying the Bible for you know a while, and I was shocked that I could be so wrong about something. And you know, it was really because I did not understand Jewish culture. I didn't. I didn't know much about you know the first century um, in terms of Jewish thinking. You know, I was not familiar with other. Um, other things that were written during that time. We call it, you know, Second Temple Jewish texts. I was not familiar with any of those things, right? And, um, And I didn't realize how my lack of familiarity with the culture, with the region, really caused me to rely more on church tradition rather than really understand what it was that the original apostles were talking about in a lot of these cases, okay? So that's my own... Um, testimony, you know. Now, um, I'm really thankful that I was able to go to Kings. I, you know, I studied um, lots. I took every Messianic Jewish class that I could when I was in Kings, and because I felt like in many of those classes, I really learned a lot because I was really getting a perspective that I had not really heard from before of the scriptures, and um, and it was so helpful for me in terms of getting a more Jewish understanding. And so now, you know, all of my favorite theologians, all my favorite scholars, biblical scholars, they're all um, very familiar with Jewish culture and thought, okay? And if you've ever, like, watched, like, the Bible Project, for example, right, um, they also have that same kind of theological bias, right, where they really try and see it from a more Jewish, Hebraic perspective, um, and I just think that it's it's very helpful in a lot of ways to understand the whole story of the Bible. And I've been able to see how um, my earlier teaching, you know, my earlier upbringing, I should say, in in you know, in the Bible was really flawed in a lot of areas. And obviously, I, I, my heart here is not to offend anybody who would disagree with me. Um, but I would like to lovingly challenge people to consider that our relative lack of knowledge on this subject really causes us to misunderstand a number of things, okay? Okay, so as we go into this topic, I want to talk about, you know, a couple things in particular, all right? Number one is the Messianic Jewish movement, all right? What is Messianic Judaism, okay? Um, I struggle with this um, in seminary, especially early on in my first couple classes, because, you know, um, if if you're a Jewish believer in Jesus— you know, many of them do not want to be called Christians. And they want to be referred to as Messianic Jews. And I'm like, you know, well, I'm a Korean American Christian. Like, wh- why do I, Why? why would I need my own title? You know, like, why would I need an identity marker that's different than Christian? Shouldn't Christian be the ultimate identity marker? That's how I felt. And so I didn't understand why, Jews would want to say, "No, I don't want to be known as a Jew. I want I don't I don't want to be known as a Christian. I want to be called something different." And that was kind of hard for me to grasp, you know. Um, but I kind of want to explain why, because again, this comes back to I don't understand Jewish culture, right? In in Jewish culture, when you say Christian, it implies a Gentile. It means a Gentile, all right. And this is something that I did not understand. Um, To a Jew, a Christian is a Gentile because Christianity is not Judaism and is incompatible with Judaism from a Jewish perspective, right? Obviously, from a Christian perspective, it's not, but from a Jewish perspective, it is, okay? Because when Jews look at Christians, what they see is they see a mix of paganism and Judaism, all right? That's how they view Christianity, that what happened was that you have these early, you know, you have these Jews living in the first century, and what happens is they take some pagan beliefs and they mix it together, right? So for example, you know, the main distinctive of Judaism from a Jewish perspective is it's monotheism, right? All other peoples believe in multiple gods, but Jews only believe in one God, right? We believe in one God and, and that's it. But Jew, But Christians, from a Jewish perspective, believe in three gods, right? Like we believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And the really problematic one is God the Son, because the idea that God is a is a man, like a man who actually lived on earth, who we have in historical records of, was actually God, this is actually pretty offensive for many Jews, because they see that as it being totally incompatible. And so, you know, the idea that if a Jew would convert to Christianity, that is the equivalent, from a Jewish perspective, of like you know, a Jew living in the Old Testament times, you know, worshiping Baal, right? It's like they're worshiping Yahweh and they're worshiping Baal. It's like it's a type of polytheism where they're starting to worship other gods. It's a type of idolatry, which is why in the Jewish community, they hate Messianic Jews, right? They hate them because what they see is that Messianic Jews, they see them as the equivalent of, you know, those, those people back in the Old Testament who were trying to get Israelites to worship other gods, Right? That's how they view Messianic Jews today. Right? So they view Christians. They don't have necessarily have a problem with Christians because Christians are Gentiles who are worshiping the God of Israel and they're worshiping Jesus. But at least they're worshiping the God of Israel and they're studying the Old Testament and the Bible. So they're becoming a little more Jewish, something like that. Right? but if you have a jew who becomes a christian that's they're giving into idolatry right they're apostasizing okay and and messianic jews have you know feel a mission to convert jews you know to believe in jesus and so when you say you're christian it well that sounds like you're you're converting them away from judaism but the whole point of messianic judaism is that messianic jews are going to argue that 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 Christian beliefs are not incompatible with Judaism. In fact, one can be fully Jewish and believe in Jesus as their Messiah, okay? And obviously, from a Christian perspective, it's like, yeah, no no kidding, of course, right? But from a Jewish perspective... This isn't possible, and this is, this is why Christians are, are largely ignorant of this, but you have to understand history here, right? As the early church was becoming increasingly Gentile, remember I said that it started to get anti-Semitic, so what they did was they started telling Jews, right, if you want to be a Christian, then you have to prove that you're no longer a Jew, and how do you do that? Well, you've got to eat pork, right? You've got to break the Mosaic Law, right in a way that we can watch you so that we know that you no longer follow the law of Moses okay and you know it, it, if i was hearing this you know 10 years ago i'd be like well that kind of you know that kind of sucks but i understand why they would do that because they want to show that they're not trusting in their own works right and they want to show that they're trusting in faith so i understand why some early christian leaders would do that but you have to understand from a jewish perspective this is Uh, this is terrible, okay? And the reason is because for a Jew, Jews were commanded by God in the law of Moses to keep the law of Moses forever, (laughs) right? In fact, the way that Jews were told, that how can you tell if a prophet is from God or not? The number one way that you discern is if they tell you to follow the law of Moses or if they tell you not to follow the law of Moses. Okay, that's the number one way that you discern whether someone is from God or not, Right? So this is really difficult. If you have, you know, people telling you the way that you need to prove that you belong to God is you do not follow the law of Moses. You show that you don't follow the law of Moses. Well, automatically, from a Jewish perspective, they can't be from God, right? They can't be from God. And this is, this, this is what I'm talking about. So for Christians, we're like, well, yeah, the law of Moses is done with. That's how we tend to feel about it. The law of Moses is done with. It's over, right? We're now saved by faith and not through works, Right, but the problem here is I think that that is a real misunderstanding of the Bible now. All right, I think it's a real misunderstanding of the Bible, and it's it's not it's in the the nuances. So I want to be careful here. I'm not trying to argue for salvation by works. I know some people will immediately jump to that, but that's not what I'm saying. Okay, um, what I'm saying is that the apostles never stopped following the law of Moses, including Paul. Okay, Paul never stopped following the law of Moses. All right? And in fact, those passages where we would naturally assume that he did stop following the Moses, those are misunderstandings on our part. And I'm trying to get you help you understand the ramifications of those misunderstandings. Those misunderstandings have created this um uh, this division between Jew and Gentile especially For Messianic Jews, for Jews that want to follow Jesus but retain their Judaism, historically what we've done is we said, hey, you cannot follow the law of Moses, and yet for a Jew, that creates this conflict where, in fact, they are supposed to follow the law of Moses, okay? Now, I want to be clear here, okay, because if you're hearing this for the first time, I can imagine this can be a little bit shocking for you. So I want to be clear. Following the law of Moses is not what saves us, all right? In fact, that is exactly what Paul's point is in, like, Romans four or five, around there, right? He's saying that, that Abraham was saved not by, you know, following the law, all right? He was saved by his faith, right? His faith was the thing that saved him, and and that was before the law, all right? And in the same way, Paul's making that point that the law of Moses is not the thing that saves, all right? But the idea here is that Jews are still obligated to follow the law of Moses, but it's not a salvific issue, Okay? It's not a salvific issue. And for Gentiles, we don't, it, this is not that big of a deal for us, right? Because we never had an obligation to follow the law of Moses. But that's exactly what Paul's point was, all right? Paul's point is that Gentiles do not have to follow the law of Moses, but that Jews do, all Right? Jews do. And again, I know for Gentiles, this doesn't seem like a big deal at all. It's like, okay, why are you, you, know, why are you harping on this so much? Okay, And the reason is because so much of the New Testament is about this issue, right? Huge portions of Paul's letters are about this issue. But because we misunderstand those passages, we create different theologies based off things that we don't understand, all right? So for example, in Ephesians 2, when Paul's talking about we're not saved by works of the law, right? We, as Christians, have interpreted that passage since the Reformation, at least, right? as we're not saved by righteous deeds, all right? We're not saved by working so hard to be good that God looks at us and goes, okay, you're worthy to go to heaven. But that's not what Paul was saying in in Ephesians 2, okay? That's not what he's saying. When he's talking about works of the law, he's talking about the law of Moses. He's talking about being saved by becoming Jewish, okay and to understand this this is really part of a a huge controversy that happened in the first century so give me like 10 minutes or 5 minutes and i'll lay out this controversy because i'll just say if you understand this early controversy in the church it will help you understand paul so much better okay all right and it will help you understand jewish culture okay and the way it works is is like this for thousands of years the jews had their identity right as the people of god they were the people of god and if a gentile wanted to become one of god's people and share in the destiny of god's people well it, there was a process for that right? and the way that that happened is that person had to become a jew okay so you know like ruth is a good example right like ruth made a decision to become a jew right your people will be mo- my people right your god will be my god Okay? And the way that you show that you were a Jew was you started to follow the law of Moses. right? So for men in particular, there's a very clear demarcation point, and that was circumcision. All right? If a Gentile, a non-Jewish man wanted to become a Jew, well, he had to get circumcised. That was the main thing that he had to do to show and to prove to everybody that he indeed was intending to follow the law of Moses. All right. It's very similar today. We have a ritual called baptism. All right. It's a lot easier to get baptized, though. Right. You get dunked underwater. Right? It's a lot easier than getting circumcised. Circumcision was very painful, especially in ancient times. Right. And that's why a lot of, you know, Gentiles who wanted to follow God in ancient times did not go all the way. All right, because they didn't want to get circumcised. All right? That was a big barrier for a lot of them. And so what you had in ancient Jewish culture was you had a class of people that were not Jews, but who still worshipped Yahweh. They were called God-fearers. Okay? So the New Testament, um, the Gospels, and the Book of Acts makes reference to these God-fearers. Right? And these were, these were Gentiles who worshipped Yahweh, but they were not considered full Jews, meaning they were not full members of the chosen people. All right? There was still a place for them, Okay. Um they would still be blessed in the age to come, right? But they were not full members of the, the chosen people, all right? And what and that's the way that had worked for thousands of years. And so in those times, you know, um especially in the 1st century, like Pharisees, Pharisees were proselytizers. They would evangelize, right? They would try to convince Gentiles to worship the God of Israel, all right? And you know, and and many Gentiles did believe in the God of Israel, and there was a place at the temple for them, the court of the Gentiles, right, where the Gentiles would worship, okay, but they were not full covenant members of the, the people of Israel, all right. Now, we need to understand that this dynamic had been operating for thousands of years, okay, so what happens, something incredible happens, okay, and this happens in Acts chapter 10. In Acts chapter 10, Peter receives a vision, okay, and in the vision, a sheet comes down from heaven, and on it are all kinds of unclean animals, okay, these are animals that Jews are forbidden to eat because the law of Moses forbids them from eating them, and a voice from heaven speaks to him and says, kill and eat, and Peter is shocked, right, he's shocked, he's like, never, I've never done this, because to do this would be a sin, And it sounds, it seems like the voice from heaven is telling him to sin by eating unclean animals, all right? And then the vision ends, and then Peter is confused. He doesn't understand the meaning of this vision, all right? Because, Because, again, it seems contradictory. It seems like the voice is telling him to commit sin, to break the law of Moses, all right? But then what happens is that immediately a messenger comes from a, a, centurion, a Roman centurion god feared named Cornelius, right? And what happens is Peter goes to Cornelius' house, and he, tell, and he shares with them about Jesus, all right? And they believe that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, all right? They believe in him, and what happens is they're filled with the Spirit, okay? Now, for us, you know, in the 21st century, we're reading that, we're like, yeah, of course, right? That's what happened to all those people, you know, who... You know, who got saved, they they got the Spirit. But you you need to understand this was a, a, a historic moment, okay? Because in the text itself, it says that Peter was amazed. He was not expecting this, okay? It did not fit his theology. Why? Because Cornelius was not a Jew, all right? Cornelius was not a Jew. Cornelius was a Gentile alright, and yet he had received the Spirit. Why did that not fit Peter's theology? Because it didn't fit anybody's theology at that time. Because the Spirit was for Jews. It was a promise God had given through many prophets in the Old Testament that he would give to the nation of Israel, right? I will give to the nation of Israel a new Spirit, right? I'll pour out my Spirit right on the nation of Israel on all flesh, okay? And this promise was for Jews. And so Peter is shocked at this, right? He's shocked at this. And when this happens, he says, well, what can we do? God has shown that he's chosen them, and so he orders that they be baptized. And then Peter goes back to the church at Jerusalem, which, again, is all Jews, and they're upset with him. And they're upset with him because Peter has been fellowshipping with Gentiles, right? Again, that's against the law of Moses. They're not supposed to be fellowshipping with Gentiles right? Because Gentiles, you know, if you eat at their house, you'll become ceremonially unclean, all this kind of stuff. So Peter has to explain the vision that, of the, of him eating the unclean animals, right? And, and I forgot to mention, but the, the message at the end of that vision was, do not call anything unclean, which I've made clean, okay? And Peter understands that the interpretation of that vision is not that Peter should go around eating unclean animals. It's that The Gentiles who were unclean, but who put their faith in Jesus, God is purifying them and making them clean so that they can fellowship with one another, all right? And when he tells the whole testimony, it's the believers are amazed, right? The Jewish believers are amazed. And they they go, wow, so God has given his spirit to Gentiles, all right? And this sets off this huge controversy in the early church. And it's the question of, do these Gentiles who come to faith in Jesus need to become Jews, Right? Because this is the way it has been it's worked for thousands of years, all right? Gentiles who want to be full members of the covenant people need to get circumcised and follow the law of Moses, right? That's the way it's always worked, okay? And that is the traditional perspective. But what happens is that um, many of the early leaders, especially Paul, start to understand that Gentiles who put their faith in Jesus do not need to become Jews, that God is not requiring of that them of that, okay? And so Paul, in particular, starts to preach very passionately that Gentile believers do not need to get circumcised and become Jews because they're not saved by works of the law, okay? That's the meaning of that Term, right When Paul's referring to works, generally speaking, he's, he's referring to things like circumcision, dietary regulations, Sabbath-keeping, things that marked a person as a Jew. And he's saying these works do not save us, it's the faith. The faith has always been the saving mechanism. Going back to Abraham, Abraham was saved by his faith. Right, He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, Okay, so that's the whole idea here. This out this huge controversy, and this controversy is the subject of many of Paul's letters. In particular, Galatians is all about this controversy, right? Huge portions of Ephesians, right? In many of his other letters, he's referencing this over and over again because it was such a big debate, and it was such a big debate, you know, um, that they, that the early apostles had to have a, a council, it, and this happens in Acts 15, where they formally decide on the issue, okay? And they formally decide that Paul's position is correct. That the Gentiles are not obligated to keep the law of Moses, right? They're only obligated to keep the Noahide laws. And these are the, the commands that God gave to Noah that apply to all mankind, right? Abstain from food. Um, dedicated to idols or that has the blood in it, right? And to sexual immorality, right? Gentiles are, are, cannot do those things, but they're not obligated to keep the law of Moses, okay? Now, this is a big deal because when you ask Christians today, how can we follow some commands in the law and not others, right? Some commands in the Bible and not others, most Christians have little idea, right? The basic way it tends to work now is, well, you know, we just obey the New Testament, right? If it's said in the New Testament, we know that we're supposed to obey it right? And that's, you know, a general good rule of thumb, but most Christians have no idea why, right? Why do we follow some Old Testament commands and why not others? Well, that's because you don't understand Jewish culture. In Jewish culture, the law of Moses, right, was for Jews, right? It was for Jews. And then there were some of those commands that also applied to Gentiles, all right? And those are demarcated in the law of Moses. So for example, Leviticus 18, dealing with sexual immorality. Okay? At the end of the chapter, that's the one that you know, forbids homosexuality and all these different sexual um, sins. All right? It makes clear that that's, this is not just to Israelites. This is for all people. All right? God will hold all people accountable to this. All right? Most Christians have no idea you know, this whole branch of Jewish theology that's which commands apply to um, Jews and which apply to non-Jews right? And so because of that, most Christians are really confused when they read the Old Testament, which is why, you know, most don't even read it, right? Or they just read the stories, and they look for Jesus, and they look for New Testament commands, right? But they don't really understand the law of Moses, or why God even gave it, or any of that kind of stuff, okay? And they don't understand why Jews today are actually still obligated to keep the law of Moses, all right? Because for them, you know, for us, I should say, we tend to think, oh, God, you know, had the law of Moses before, but then he abolished it, all right, right? But then, you know, He he's done with it now. And now we live in the age of grace, and, you know, we're saved by faith, and we don't need any of those things anymore. But that's not actually true, because those commands, given the law of Moses, it specifically says you're going to keep these forever, <laughs> right? You're going to keep these commands forever, all right? And that's why it's a huge stumbling block for many Jews today to become Christians because Christians are expecting them to, to get rid of the law of Moses, right? Or not follow it anymore. But again, that is the, the thing that Jews are told, don't ever listen to people that tell you to do this, right? And even Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, right? And many Christians think, okay, well, he fulfilled it by essentially abolishing it, <laughs> right like that's how he you know he fulfilled it and so it's no longer relevant or necessary okay and i understand that perspective but that's not quite true okay the truth is that there's no temple in jerusalem so many of the commands that are about the temple are not in effect that's why many orthodox jews today don't follow some of the laws of moses right because there's no temple in jerusalem so you can't for example sacrifice animals anywhere except for the temple in jerusalem all right now we christians understand that the whole sacrificial system was fulfilled in christ okay but for jews they don't sacrifice animals today because there's a lack of a temple in jerusalem all right. So it's a really interesting point of theology to figure out, okay, how should we interpret the law of Moses in light of 21st century reality, okay? And that's a real question that Jewish scholars and rabbis are constantly debating, all right? But the Christians, we are so ignorant of, all right? So the reason why I'm going to all of this detail and I apologize because I know that for many people this is very technical, right? It seems like we're getting really technical with the Bible but it really plays out in a lot of how we understand the Bible. Okay? All the time, I see Christians interpreting the Bible in a way that is inconsistent right, with a Jewish understanding of what these texts actually mean. Okay? And I'll just reference a handful here, okay? I, but I see this all the time. Okay? Romans 9 okay, is, is considered the major proof text for Calvinism. All right? It's like you know, the one where God says, "Doesn't who are you, oh man, to question God? Doesn't he have the right to use this you know, piece of clay for glory and this piece of clay for base usage? And the way that gets interpreted is, doesn't God have the right to save some people and destine other people for hell? And I just want to say, I think that that is a complete misunderstanding of that entire chapter. Complete misunderstanding, okay? That's a misunderstanding that doesn't understand the Jewish context, right, and the Jewish thought behind the passage, because you really have to be familiar with Jeremiah 18, okay? He's he's obviously referencing Jeremiah 18 in that passage, and it's speaking about the election of Israel, God's choosing of Israel. That entire chapter is about God's choosing of Israel, but we have reinterpreted that passage to be about, you know, choosing people, individuals for salvation and stuff like that, but that's not really what the passage is about um, that's just one example. Um, you know, um, the woman caught in adultery is another example I see all the time. Right? I've seen that passage used to excuse every sin. Right? Because Jesus, you know, you know, this woman's caught in adultery, and the law of Moses said that she says that she should die. Right? But. You know, God said, you know, he who is without sin cast the first stone. And so what he essentially did was he got rid of the entire law of Moses. He declared the entire law of Moses null and void. And now it's the age of grace. So how can we judge other people who are in sin, right? Unless you don't sin at all, you can't possibly judge anybody else who sins. I just want to say that, in my opinion, is such a terrible interpretation of that passage. It's such a terrible interpretation of that passage, okay? First of all, it contradicts so much other New Testament teaching, all right? But... But I understand why people interpret it like that because they don't understand why Jesus said that. Why would Jesus say that if he still thought that these people should uphold the law of Moses, right? Well, and the answer is because he was actually upholding the law of Moses. Okay, according to the law of Moses, the witness, whoever witnessed the sin, had to cast the first stone, all right? Whoever witnessed the sin had to cast the first stone. And if if nobody cast the stone, right, he cannot cast the stone because he did not witness it. All right? And that's almost certainly what he is referring to in that passage, okay? They brought her to him because it was a trap, all right? It should have been the man and the woman brought before, but Jesus was discerning this is a trap, so he's challenging them by the law of Moses, all right? He who is without sin, I would I would guess that it's in this matter. Who's without sin in this matter? Cast the first stone, right? You who have witnessed this first cast the first stone. And that's because this was a trap for Jesus because it was illegal for Jews to, to, to execute um, capital punishment, right? It was illegal for Jews to execute people because they were under the rule of the Romans. So that's why it was a trap for Jesus. If Jesus had told them, execute them, kill them, Then what happened is he would have been guilty under Roman law and they could have prosecuted him under Roman law. But if he said, don't execute her, then he would have, then the Jews would have been like, oh, he doesn't follow the law of Moses. That was the nature of the trap. All right. So the way Jesus evaded the trap was actually by being more familiar with the law of Moses, right? By understanding that according to the law of Moses, he who witnessed the act must cast the first stone. And because this is really a trap set up to trap him, now what it's going to do is going to implicate the one who cast the first stone right? That's how he evades the trap, all right? But again, most Christians don't understand the nature of the law of Moses. They don't understand all this stuff, right? And so because of that, they we make up new interpretations for these passages, all right? And that's what I see all the time, okay? So obviously, there's a lot here. I could I could go into so many different interpretation issues in scripture. And I think as we're moving forward, I will get into a lot of these. But my general encouragement for all of us is I would just encourage you, study Jewish culture. You know, study, you know, scholars and theologians who understand the first century, all right? And, um, you know, it is very trendy right now in theology. So there's a lot of them out there, all right? Um, I really like Michael Heiser. I recommend him these days. He's, He's an expert um, in a lot of this ancient culture and ancient writings, okay? Um, Brad um, Young is a wonderful scholar. David Flusser is a great scholar um, who writes a lot about, you know, the first century period. Uh, but there's so many. N.T. Wright, I really appreciate. A, a lot of this, um, we started to venture in the new perspective of Paul. Um, I should probably do an entire episode describing that entire issue because it is kind of controversial in some um evangelical Christian circles today, all right? It really shouldn't be controversial, okay? Let me just say up front, if you're somewhat familiar with the New Perspective, there's nothing. um, The the New Perspective does not change, you know, any core doctrine, any Orthodox doctrine, but people think it does, okay? And again, I think that's because they, they don't know what they're talking about, all right? That all being said, we'll talk about that in future episodes. All right, I hope that was helpful for you. God bless. See you later.